Let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to jump into John chapter 18, verse number one. You know, it's my birthday. So I can preach as late as I want to tonight. And you all just have to oblige. Amen. No, I'm not going to do that. All right. Verse number one. The Bible says when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden into the which he entered in his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come unto him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. The title of the sermon this evening is a double meaning to the title here. The title is this, Abusing the Truth. Abusing the Truth. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, tonight as I take on a, a passage that was difficult, Lord, to outline for me, because Lord, there's just so much material here. And Lord God, I want to do the Bible justice. I don't want to preach my opinion, so Lord, help me to be focused and... Lord, to say the things that you and I worked on in the office. And Lord, I pray the message tonight would encourage us, challenge us. Lord, sometimes we need to be rebuked. Other times we need to be encouraged. But Lord God, according to each person here, I pray, Spirit of God, you drive these truths home. Help us, Lord, to comprehend the passage and then, Lord, be challenged by it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. People take great liberty with the truth. Um, It's funny how terms change uh, generation uh, by generation. Used to be people people would say, that was my fault. That was my fault. Now kids say, it was an accident. You see how that one little subtle change from my fault, my fault, it was an accident. It was an accident. And uh, we, we want to shift away from owning responsibility. Another one I heard some years ago is instead of saying I told a lie, someone says I was just massaging reality. No, you told a lie. You didn't massage reality. Truth is truth. Some years ago, Oprah Winfrey declared that each person should speak their own truth. Speak their own truth. And I have to say, growing up as a little boy, my mom would put the Oprah Winfrey program on sometimes and we would watch it. And uh, I, I have learned a lot about how to interact with people from watching Oprah. She's one of the best at it. But Oprah, you are wrong. There isn't my truth and your truth. There is the truth. And I want to uh, give you by way of introduction this evening Five characteristics of truth. These won't be on. Uh, now these will be on the screen. Uh, n- not enough room to put it uh, as a fill in the blank on your outline. But find a place to jot these down. Truth is divine. Truth is divine. Now, Romans chapter number three. Maybe these aren't going to be on the screen. That's okay. Romans chapter three. Write them down all the same. Romans three verse number four says this: God forbid. Yea, let God be true. And every man a liar, as is written, that thou mightest be 
justified in thy saying, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Truth is divine. There isn't your truth and my truth. There is the truth. God is truth. And when you try to say, well, my truth is different than your truth, you're declaring yourself to be a God. No, truth is divine. Let me give you another characteristic here. Truth is singular. Truth is singular. Second John says this, and there's only one chapter, the first two verses, the elders under the elect lady and under her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth for the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us shall and shall be with us forever. Notice that John does not talk about truth as an open concept. Uh, the the article a or an would declare would imply a plurality of options. The article the uh, tells us that there is yet one truth, one singular truth. Truth is divine. Uh, second, truth is singular. Notice next, truth is absolute. Truth is absolute. And I don't have one verse for this. I have the entire New Testament for this because Jesus is Truth And uh, Jesus said in John 14, I am the way. He said this, I am the truth. And so if uh, truth can be summed up in a person, then truth is absolute. Truth is not subjective. It doesn't change. You ever met one of these people? You ask them what two plus two is and they say, well, it could be four, but it could be three. Or it could be five. Or it could be whatever you want it to be. No, no, no. Two apples... Plus two apples is always four apples. Amen? That will never change. There is no theory that changes that. Uh, truth is absolute. There is one way to heaven. There isn't a plurality of ways of heaven. Why? Because truth is absolute. Truth is divine. Truth is singular. Let me give you a fourth attribute of truth here this evening. Truth is eternal. Truth is eternal. Psalm 119, uh, verse 89 says this, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Someone cleverly declared that before the first words of Genesis 1-1 were ever spoken, the last words of Revelation 22-21 had already been penned. The Bible had already been completed. Forever, O Lord, thy word, which is uh, the epitome of truth, is settled in heaven. Truth is Eternal. Now, why is it that we can read a story out of the Bible that's 4,000 years old and find applications that are relative to us all these years later? Times have changed and cultures have changed and people have changed, but truth never changes. What was true yesterday will be true today and will be true tomorrow. Why? Because the Bible tells us Jesus Christ, the same Yesterday and today and forever. And if Jesus is truth, then truth was true yesterday and truth will be true today and truth will be true tomorrow. And you know what? The definition of marriage was uh, what it was with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And it is what it was 2,000 years ago. And it is what it is today. And it is what it will be in 2,000 years from now. Truth never changes. Truth is 
absolute. How about one more here? Truth is authoritative. Uh, John chapter 8 verse 32. Ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. It's authoritative. You can challenge truth, but that doesn't change truth. John 17, 17. Jesus said, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. It is authoritative. Imagine with me, if you will, that Congress got together in their next term and decided to pass laws to change the laws of gravity. And let's say they worked hard to say, we're going to pass these laws. And based on the laws that we pass, when something is dropped out of a 10th story window, instead of going down because we passed these laws, it will go up. And you look at Congress and say, you're crazy. You can't pass laws that change the laws of gravity. What goes up always comes down. No matter what Congress puts on paper, that doesn't change that. And my friend, you can push against God's law. And you can push against God's truth, but God's truth ultimately is authoritative. Your opinion doesn't matter uh, what Satan throws at us, what Satan, uh, how, how Satan uses the culture to try to bend things. That doesn't change anything. Truth is truth. And people today are busy trying to abuse the truth. But understand this. Truth doesn't move. Truth doesn't move. When it comes to John chapter 18, commentator John Phillips keenly observed that the Apostle John is silent about the Lord's agony in the garden. He is silent about a great deal. In this chapter or these chapters, he does not tell of the Lord's claim to have power to summon heaven's host to his aid. He is silent about the traitor's kiss about the Lord's desertion by all the disciples, about the false witnesses, the adjuration, the great confession, about the examination before Herod, about Pilate's wife's messages, about Pilate's hand-washing, about the self-imposed curse of the Jews, about the impressment of Simon to carry the cross, about the mockery at Calvary, about the darkness, about the terrible orphan cry, about the earthquake, the rending of the veil, the confession of the centurion, about the repentance of one of the thieves. None of this is mentioned in John's Gospel, although John could have written books about those things. Um, He passed over them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already said all that was necessary about these events. John never intended his gospel to just be a historical supplement to the other gospels. His concern was to emphasize the person of Christ and especially the signs that underscored his deity. So understand, John is very disciplined in his writing. He's not giving us a historical account as much as he's highlighting, he's underlining, he's underscoring the deity of Christ. That was the whole purpose of his uh, the penning of his gospel. And so the events he gives us are meant to put a magnifying glass over the deity of Christ. So we've taken John 18 here and we've broken it up into three points. And uh, let's look at uh, these thoughts this evening as we consider this idea of abusing the truth. Number one, notice Christ's arrest. Christ's arrest. Look with me at verse number one and let's pay attention to the disloyalty of Judas. Look with me at verse number one. When Jesus had spoken these words... 
he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men, speaking of the Romans, the Gentiles, and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, speaking of uh, uh, temple police, uh, came, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, a band of men. This wasn't just a small group of a hundred soldiers. No, they came with a thousand soldiers, a garrison, a band of men to come and arrest Jesus. And if that was not enough, they also came with temple police. Why did they bring so many people to arrest one man? Because his reputation had gone before him. They knew who he was. On top of that, Judas knew the power of Jesus. And so they brought an army to have Jesus arrested. This Judas, this same man who Jesus had chosen to come and follow him, this same man who had been entrusted to carry the bag and be the treasurer for the disciples, this same man who had been given power over demons and power to heal, this same man who had sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to him teach, this same man who had been given all of the opportunities at salvation, as the rest of the Jews, he decided that he would turn on Jesus and that he would gather for himself these men to have Jesus arrested. Why? Because he was greedy for money, for that 30 pieces of silver, the disloyalty of Judas. In my years, I've seen people who seemed like they had a deep love for God and seemed like they were all on board with following Jesus and loving Jesus. They turn aside for some other reason. They uh, give in and they fall in the trap of money and they fall in the trap of fame or they fall in the trap of, of power and uh, they, they fall in the trap and they become disloyal to the Lord. I remember when I was in college, uh, they sat us down every year, once a year. They had the president of the college come in with us. All the men of the college were gathered together. We were put in a large room, and there'd be several hundred of us in there, and the president would come in, and he would give us a scathing challenge. It was pretty much the same challenge every year. And he would talk about how that when we would leave and go work for another pastor somewhere, that we were to be loyal to that pastor, that we were to go there and assist him. We were not to go there and cause problems. And he would get up and tell us, and he said he got the speech from Bob Jones Sr. He'd say, uh, listen, you may not be much, but you can be loyal. He said, even a dog can be loyal. Don't you go out and be worse than a dog. You be loyal. And I have to tell you that I left college and I was determined that wherever I worked, I'd be loyal. And can I tell you that I ended up working for some scoundrels of some pastors who were just not very good men, who made it a challenge to be loyal. But can I tell you this evening that uh, uh, being loyal to Jesus ought to be one of the easiest things there is to do. It was Jesus Christ who went to Calvary and died to save your soul. I like what Brother Mike Yankowski said a few minutes ago about how where would he be if it weren't for the grace of God and salvation that he had in Jesus. And every time I turn and think about the cross that my Jesus Christ died upon and I think about the great sacrifice he made for me, how can I be anything but loyal 
to my Jesus, but Judas had no problem selling away Jesus for 30 measly pieces of silver. What would it, call, what would it take for you to sell out your Jesus? What would it take for you to turn your back on His church? What would it take for you to walk away from living a life of devotion and being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yesterday I was sitting with my family and my uh, uh, son asked me a question. He said, uh, can you be uh, a Christian and be gay? And I said to him, I said, you can be saved and be gay, but you cannot be an active follower of Christ and live in that lifestyle. And my daughter looked at me and she said, that is an interesting way of answering that question. Now I say this evening is that you cannot be an active follower of Christ and turn your back on his church. You cannot be an active follower of Christ and turn your back on sharing the gospel. You cannot be an active follower of Jesus Christ and not make his passion your passion. Judas turned his back on Jesus for 30 measly pieces of silver. Letter B, about Christ's arrest, we see the dominance of Jesus. And again, John gives us details that the other three gospels don't give us. Because each gospel has its own uh, 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 emphasis, points of emphasis. But uh, John offers us a fascinating account of the arrest of Jesus here. Look with me at verse number 4. The Bible says, Jesus therefore knowing all things that should come unto him went forth and said unto them. Or rather Jesus therefore knowing all things that should come unto him went forth and said unto them. Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Now remember it's dark out. Jesus saith unto him, them, I am he. Now look there at your Bibles, all right? You see the word he, you see how it's in italics? Okay, let me just explain something to you about the way the King James Version of the Bible was translated. Anytime you see a word in italics, authors put that there for transparency reasons, all right? Why would they do that? Because they did a word-by-word -word translation into English. And any time they could not go word by word and they needed to add a word for clarity or there was not an exact word by word translation in English, they would make it italics. The Greek translation of I am he is this. It's ego emi. Ego emi. If you take I am that I am out of the Hebrew and translate that into Greek, you get ego and me. They came and asked, who are you seeking? Or Jesus asked, who are you seeking? They declared Jesus of Nazareth. Now, don't miss this. By declaring Jesus of Nazareth, they were putting him down. You see, nothing good came out of Nazareth. We're looking for that scumbag from Nazareth, Jesus. Jesus' reply to that was, I am that I am. He said to them, I am He. I am. Look what happens when Jesus answers their question. Verse 6. As soon then as He had said unto them, I am He, they went backwards and fell to the ground. You have a thousand soldiers with swords and staves in uniform. You have the temple police that are there. You have Malchus, who's there on behalf of the high priest. You have Judas, who's just kissed Jesus on the cheek. Who, who are you seeking? Uh, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. I am He. 
bam, they all fell down on their backsides. He knocked them over with the power of his voice. Wow. Do you see why John is putting this in his gospel? John is highlighting the divinity of Jesus. Continue reading with me. Look at verse number 7. Then asked he them again. So they're picking themselves up. They're dusting themselves off. They're a little taken aback. They're on their heels for sure. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you. Here he says it again. Ego of me. I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake of them, which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Now, I get the idea that they wanted not only to arrest Jesus, they wanted to arrest his followers. The reason why Jesus spoke with such authority and knocked them down and put them on their heels was so that he would be in charge of the arrest. That he would dictate the terms of the arrest. And so he uh, asks as they approach, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. They They all fall down. As they're getting up, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. All right. Here I am. You're going to arrest me. You're not going to arrest them. Whatever you say, boss. If you don't want us to arrest them, if you can knock us down with your voice, we're going to do whatever you say. And so they arrest Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus was in charge. Go back in chapter 17. Chapter 17 and verse 12. Notice as Jesus prays with his disciples and for his disciples. While I was with them, Jesus says to the Father, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Go back with me to chapter 18 and look at verse number 8. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. You see, Jesus is acting as a shield for his disciples that the saying might be fulfilled. What saying? That of chapter 17. Which he spake of them whom thou gavest me, have I lost none. And so Jesus exerts his dominance and he dictates the terms of the arrest so that the other disciples are not arrested and they're able to run into hiding. And that's exactly what they did. So we're looking at the arrest of Christ here. We see the disloyalty of Judas and the dominance of Jesus. How about letter C, the drama of Peter. And drama is a great word to sum up Peter, is it not? Uh, Peter was always stepping into some kind of doo-doo. He was always stepping into some kind of drama. Peter was always uh, putting his foot in his mouth and getting himself in trouble. Look down at chapter 18 and look at verse number 10. Then Simon Peter... Now remember here, okay? Jesus has just knocked everybody down with his voice. Alright? Now Peter was asleep. So I don't know where Peter wakes up in all this. We know from another account in the gospel, Peter was sleeping. So who knows where Peter wakes up, okay? But somewhere in here, Peter's sleeping, and uh, Jesus knocks over the soldiers, and they all get up. You have a thousand of them. You have, uh, you have the temple guards as well, so the temple police are there, and then you have Jesus and his twelve. Now, uh, as it goes, uh, humanly speaking, Jesus and his crew didn't stand a chance, other than the fact that Jesus was God, and he had garrisons of angels at his behest, and he had his own power of his own word, but Peter... Peter's going to step up and he's going to beat all thousand plus soldiers by himself. Look here. Uh, Peter, then Peter, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. I love John because Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us this story, but don't give us the names. 
All we know is that a disciple cut off someone else's ear. John just comes right out and says, it was Peter that did it, and he cut off Malchus's ear. Thank you, John. John, I guess, had a little bit different relationship with Peter. And then we know the historical timeline of when John was written. Peter was already uh, deceased at this point, and his legacy was settled. Look at verse 11. Then said Jesus unto Peter, put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? I heard someone point out some time ago, and... I found this fascinating that Jesus called Judas his friend when he kissed him on the cheek. But Jesus called Peter his enemy when he tried to tell him not to go to the cross. You see, Jesus knew his destiny was the cross. And anyone who got in his way became his enemy. But because Judas was helping him get to the cross in that moment, he called him his friend. Jesus had come to die Judas was trying to again step in the way and prevent the arrest of Jesus. No doubt this escalated things. You imagine the, the servant in charge, his ears been chopped off. You think maybe that doesn't raise tension a little bit? Jesus was the peacemaker. What did he do? Well, we don't know this from John's gospel, but from the other gospel accounts, we know that Jesus reached down. And picked up that ear out of the sand and put it right back on the side of Malchus's head. I hope we get to heaven we get to see a, a recreation of these things. You know, that, that's something. He put his ear. Can you imagine Malchus, one moment, he's there with an ear. And then he has someone take a swipe at his head. Almost take his head off and just get his ear. And now he's bleeding profusely out of the side of his head with no ear. And then all of a sudden his ear is attached back to his head. And I wonder if that caused Malchus to maybe take some pause. So we see the events around Christ's arrest. Jesus diffusing. Jesus being the peacemaker. Jesus bringing calm to Peter's drama. Number one, Christ's arrest. Number two, Christ's arraignment. Christ's arraignment. We see letter A, the disorder of the Jews. Look with me at verse 12. Then the band and the captain... And officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, uh, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews, and it was expedient that one man should die for the people. You may remember a couple chapters ago, they sit and discuss how uh, that this Jesus has become a menace and is going to bring a toppling down of the Jewish empire and bring the whole Roman government down upon them because Jesus was such uh, a, such a, 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 a difficult person for them to be able to control. And Caiaphas stood up amongst them and said, one man must die for the salvation of our Jewish order. And it's this Jesus they made a pact to have him killed. And so Caiaphas is trying to move forward with this and make this happen. Look down with me at verse number 19. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Again, look down at verse 22. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? We'll get this in context in a moment. Look at verse 24. Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest in my study of the Bible uh, message tonight, uh, did a lot of looking into the history of how Annas and Caiaphas got their positions of power. And uh, there were backdoor deals likely made with the Roman government. 
for them to get where they got. But interestingly enough, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. I had heard this years ago and, and, and sort of forgotten about it. But um, the whole way in which this trial was conducted was illegal by, by their own Roman or Jewish standard. In fact, you can still find this in the, uh, in the Mishnah, which is the commentary um, that uh, the Sanhedrin uses to this day. The trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin was totally illegal. Now, according to the Mishnah, all right, capital offenses could be tried by a quorum of 23. A case concerning a false prophet, however, had to be brought before the entire Sanhedrin of 71 members. The judges were to sit in a semicircle with the president in the middle so that the faces of each judge might be seen by each of the others. Now listen to the rest of these. The witnesses were to be strictly separated and examined individually. If the testimony of two agreed, it was taken as valid. When the case involved the death penalty, the witnesses were cautioned to the con- uh, as to the consequences of their testimony. Um, they were not allowed to inject their own conjectures or hearsay into the proceedings, all right? In capital cases, that would be the case with Jesus, everything was done uh, to give the accused the benefit of the doubt. Votes were, uh, uh, for acquittal were to be taken first. None of this in the gospel accounts ever happens. Although civil cases could be tried at night, decisions had to be returned during the day. Capital cases could be tried by day only. That never happened for Jesus. His entire trial was at night. They were going completely against their own laws. An acquittal could be pronounced on the day it was reached, but a sentence of condemnation leading to the death sentence could not be given until the next day, allowing time for a change of mind. Capital cases could not be tried on the eve of a Sabbath or a feast. That one was also violated. In cases of alleged blasphemy, that would apply to here, the witnesses were rigorously cross-examined to, to assertion the exact words used by the accused. If blasphemy was established, the judges should uh, stood and rent their clothes. On the way to execution, further efforts were made to establish the prisoner's innocence. Four or five times, opportunity was provided for the condemned to bring fresh pleas that might exonerate him. A herald went ahead of the procession proclaiming the name of the prisoner, the name of his father, the, the nature of his offense, and the names of the witnesses of whose testimony he was condemned. The herald urged everyone who could prove his innocence to step forward. None of this happened. The blasphemer was to die by way of being stoned. The witnesses on whose testimony he had been condemned were to cast the first stones after stoning, the blasphemer's corpse was to be hung on a gibbet, taken down that same night, and buried in a common man's grave. Those were the rules, and none of them were followed when it came to Jesus. We see the disorder of the Jews. Letter B, we see the discretion of Jesus. Now, it is amazing to me, this is a fascinating study all in of itself. Anytime Jesus got into a combative conversation, he was the master of controlling the conversation 
and, and, and speaking only that which needed to be said and doing it in a way that was precise and pristine. Look at chapter 19. And you can do a whole uh, deep dive study just on how Jesus carefully chooses his words. Look here. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. So what are they doing here? They're, they're trying to scope out Jesus to see what charges that they're going to bring against him. He's just been arrested, okay? We don't get the account about Herod, but we do get the account of him going to Annas and then to Caiaphas. Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogues and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Now, had Jesus said things in secret, Jesus had just spoken to his disciples in the upper room at length, and then had spoken with them on his way to the garden. But Jesus could have rehearsed all those things back. There was nothing new there. And they would have been bored to hear everything he had to say. Uh, what Jesus is saying is everything that I've declared, I've declared openly. There's nothing I've declared in secret that you need to know about. Why askest thou me, Jesus says, 21, ask them which heard me, which I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. Jesus said, I am not going to give you what you're looking for. If you think I've done something wrong, get your witnesses together and do it the right way. Look down at 22. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? And boys, I thought about this Bible study tonight. I thought about the man who did that. The man whose hand struck Jesus. The man who struck his creator. He reached up and he hit him. You know, one day, if that man did not get saved, he went to hell with hands that struck the face of the one who created him and the one that died for him. If that man did get saved, then... The Lord God redeemed him of even smacking the face of the one who made him and loved him. Look at 23. Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? He hit him out of animus. He hit him out of anger. Now Annas had sent him bound into Caiaphas, the high priest. So we see the discretion of Jesus. Jesus chooses his words carefully. Well, next week we're going to get into letter C and we're going to talk about Peter. And we're going to see Peter's play in this. Uh, time does not allow us this evening to even begin to unwrap Peter in, uh, in this. And uh, I love John. He gives us more detail about Peter's denial. Uh, and you put that together with the other three Gospels, we sort of get the whole picture there. But we'll look at Peter next Wednesday evening, all right? Very good. Well, tonight, let me just finish by saying this to you. Be loyal to Jesus. Be loyal to Jesus. How can you be loyal to Jesus? Walk with Him. Spend time with Him. Love Him. Nothing gets me more upset or riled or hurt when I hear people just loosely throw his name around. I would never, ever let somebody talk about my wife or my mother like that. You know what? I love my wife and I love my mother. 
Well, they didn't die on the cross for my sins. Boy, I sure am going to be careful with his name. And I sure am not going to let other people hurt his name in my presence. Amen? Be loyal to Jesus. He's sure as loyal to us, isn't he? Amen. Let's stand together. We'll stand together and let's be loyal to our Lord and Savior tonight. Again, if you didn't fill out a life group card, make sure you get that filled out and turned in before you leave this evening. Sure do love all of you. For those of you who helped uh, celebrate my birthday yesterday, thank you. And uh, made me feel very loved. Others I didn't wanted to be there couldn't. And all the same, you're here tonight. And being here tonight means just as much to me. Thank you for being here tonight. No, you didn't come for me, you came for the Lord, but it sure encourages my heart too. Amen.